0: Hi, and welcome to the February 19th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And my desire is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, the reading is in Leviticus and in Mark. We're now into the second gospel. It's Leviticus chapter 25 and Mark chapter 1. That's Leviticus 25 and Mark chapter 1. Now, if you've not read those passages yet, I would encourage you to hit pause, go back and read them for yourself, and uh, then come back and uh, see what I've got to say about it. So I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Okay, so let's get to Leviticus 25, and and there's a lot in here, but let let me just try to be brief. Uh, Basically, this is a command regarding Sabbath rests. Sabbath rests. And I I want you to know that the Sabbath was intended to do two things. uh, To meet our need physically, to meet our need spiritually. The Sabbath was to be a time whenever people would rest physically. Uh, where they wouldn't have to work you know every seventh day the sabbath on saturday they would literally cease from working it was against the jewish law for you to work i'm telling you if you go over to uh, israel even jerusalem the major huge city bustling city of jerusalem um tell you, most days of the week, if you were to go out uh, into the road, it's every man for himself. I mean, it it is crazy. There's tons of traffic, lots of horns. I mean, it's just crazy. But on Saturday, on the Sabbath, you could go onto the main roadways in Jerusalem right now, And you could essentially lay down in some of those roads and no harm would come to you because they still observe the Sabbath. It's a day that they understand, even though they're not followers of the Lord now, they're primarily secular. They still observe the Sabbath and the Sabbath is a day when they are to physically rest, physically rest. And it's a time for physical rejuvenation, but also it was intended for a time for spiritual rejuvenation. Uh, when people in that quiet time, that down time, would enjoy time with the Lord. And so that's how Christians come to understand Sunday. As we look at how the Sabbath was talked less and less in the New Testament, and the first day of the week was addressed a few times, it looks as if the, the, the early Christians were then not celebrating the seventh day rest of creation but the the first day of the week on which Jesus rose victoriously from the grave and so we as Christians are to apply the Sabbath law to Sunday it should be a day of rest a day of rest and also a day of spiritual rejuvenation but we also see in Leviticus 25 and let me just kind of touch on these quickly we see in verses 1 through 7 that the Lord said don't just take off every seventh day of the week. He said, I want you to take off every seventh year. Every seventh year. Now, if you look at verses one through seven, he is saying not to go out and plant seed, not to go out and harvest a crop. Um, that's primarily what he's talking about. But when we realize that the Israelites at that time were, they they were agrarian. They they worked in the fields. That was their job. That's what they did. All You know, most of the day, they were working out in the fields planting, weeding, fertilizing, harvesting. They were doing whatever they could to just guarantee as much as possible that they would have a good uh, crop uh, come harvest time. Well, every seventh year, the Lord said, don't do that. And so it was a time for them to trust the Lord, that he would provide enough in the sixth year for them to eat in the seventh year and also eat in the eighth year until that harvest came in. Um. But it was not only a time of faith to trust the Lord, but it was also a time to rest physically and to use that time to just reorient themselves in a right relationship with the Lord. The Sabbath was always intended for physical rest and spiritual growth. Then we see, not only did God say, I want you to rest every seventh day, and I want you to rest every seventh year, but then in verses 8 through essentially the end of the chapter, he says, I want you to rest every 50th year. Now, how did he come up with that number? Well, if they were to rest every seven years, imagine you, you work six years, then you rest the seventh. Then you work six more, rest the seventh work six more, rest the seventh. Do that seven times, and you have 49 years. The Lord said the next year, the 50th year, that's the year of celebration, the year of Jubilee. And this was a wonderful, wonderful year, a wonderful year of celebration for the Israelites. It started on the Day of Atonement, according to verses 8 and 9, when the priests went in and, and atoned for the sins of him and his family as well as the Israelites, and he would do that by sacrificing goats and a bull and sprinkling the blood there in the Holy of Holies, and that would begin. And the 50th year, this year was a year when land that had been bought was to be returned to its original owner be returned to its original owner. So if you were someone that was poor and you just could not, you you had some bad crops and you didn't have enough money and resources to keep that and you needed finances, then you could sell your property to another Jew and on the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, you would get your land back and you wouldn't have to pay for it. Now the year of Jubilee may be 40 years away, or it could be a year away. Um, But when you sold it, you would sell it to someone based on the amount of crops that they could grow before the next year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, it comes back to you and to your family. Not only that, but slaves were freed on the 50th year. Uh, Those that were indentured servants, Jewish slaves and servants, they would be let go. It's free. You know, you're gone. You don't have to serve anymore. Um, They were not to plant or harvest their fields on this year. Once again, they were to have two years, not just the 49th year, which was one every seven years, but on the 50th year, they weren't to plant. So they had two years where they trusted in the Lord, they rested physically, And as they trusted in the Lord, they were to grow spiritually in their relationship with him. Now, there's other things that we could talk about. I just want to point out a few more things. In verses 23 through 34, we read about how um, land could be bought back by a near relative. This is also a kinsman redeemer. And friend, I'm telling you, when we get to the book of Esther, we're going to read about the kinsman redeemer. We're going to read where this law comes into play. But I also want you to know that uh, the kinsman redeemer could step in on behalf of someone who was poor. The next relative, the closest of relative, could step in. And if he or she was wealthy, primarily a he, if they were wealthy enough, they had first dibs on buying that property for a relative who could not buy it back. And uh, this ultimately is a picture of Jesus, who is our kinsman redeemer. And so we're going to be talking about that later as we deal with Esther. Um, verses 35 through 55 we realize that the Lord had made provision so that poor Israelites were not to be mistreated they couldn't be charged interest on a loan and so this was the Lord giving laws that were in people's best interest they couldn't be charged interest on a loan and they couldn't become slaves indentured servants yes slaves no but then we get into verses 44 through 46 where we are told that non-Jews could become slaves and even slaves for life. And even we are told that they could be passed on as property to children. And so this is a text that does show that in the Levitical law, not New Testament, but in the Levitical law, slavery was was not only allowed, but it was managed it wasn't it wasn't commanded, but it was managed, and uh, but we even then we see if we bring other passages of Scripture, and I could bring others, but I don't want to make this all about slavery. But I do want to say that if you read the command, that the fourth command, that remember the Sabbath day, you keep it holy. If you were to read Exodus chapter twenty, verse ten, you realize that that command to rest applied to slaves. to to those that were non-Jews, that if there was a non-Jew who was a slave, you were required to let them rest every seventh day. Not only that, but if you look at Deuteronomy chapter sixteen, verses eleven and fourteen, that if you uh, if a holy day came up, and we just went through some some of the Jewish holy days recently um, in our podcast, that the slaves were to observe that holy day too. They were to get the day off. They were to be able to relax and enjoy those holy days. And also, we read in Exodus chapter twenty one, verses twenty and twenty one, that uh, if the, uh, uh, an owner, if a master hit a slave with a rod, if he beat his slave and that slave died, the master was punished. He was punished. It says in Exodus 21, 20, when a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies under his abuse, the owner must be punished. This is not the way slavery was understood in America. Many people in American history looked to the Old Testament and with their pious religiosity said that it condoned what they were doing. It did not it did not. It did not allow for abuse. In verse 21, though, listen to Exodus 21, verse 21. It says, however, if the slave can stand up after a day or two, the owner should not be punished because he is his owner's property. And so what do you think about that? Well, I'm telling you, the way my mind is working, I'm telling you, human, human nature sees things this way. If I was a slave and I didn't like my master and my master beat me and he hit me hard and I knew that the law said that if I got up within two or three days—actually, uh, it says within a day or two—if I, if I, if I in my mind knew that if I got up within a day or two that he wouldn't be punished, I'm telling you, I'm going to milk it for all it's worth. <laughs> I'm going to stay in bed and moan because, after all, they don't have X-rays, they don't have CAT scans, they can't look in to see if a bone is broken or anything like that. So I'm going to milk it for all it's worth, so that my master gets what's coming to him. And so whenever I look at verse 21, that if the slave can stand up after a day or two, I see in that that the masters were motivated to treat those who were their slaves, treat them kindly and nicely, do things for them, treat them with respect. Because if you didn't, there were ways that they would be able to get you. And uh So I'm telling you, I've opened up a can of worms here, but this is in the word of God. It, we have to deal with it when we see it. But this is what I see. If you want to know how Christians are to think about slavery, then I want to encourage you to look at Ephesians 5 toward the end of the chapter. And I don't have the passage, but as it talks about um, slaves, actually I'm going to turn over there very quickly. I don't want to hit pause, but I'm going to turn over there very quickly. If you were to go to Ephesians chapter 5 and go to... Actually, it's chapter 6. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And we're going to deal with that when we get there. We're going to camp out and spend some time there. But if you want to see about Christians and slavery, what we are to think, at least in first century, um, then look at uh, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. But also, I would encourage you to read Philemon. Read the one chapter of Philemon and realize that Paul was twisting Philemon's arm to let his slave go free. Um, It's a big discussion. We're going to get to those whenever we get to bigger passages. All right. So let's move on to the next chapter. Okay, so let's look at Mark 1. In verses 1 through 8, we see John the baptizer's ministry. And uh, whenever we look at verses 2 and 3, we come to realize that Mark, as he was led by the Spirit... Um, was seeing that John the Baptizer was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes specifically Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. He sees John the Baptizer as being a fulfillment of those prophecies. Now I do also want you to know that uh, in Mark chapter 1 verse 4, it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now we got to get clear on this because when we get to the book of Acts, uh, we're going to come to see that there were those who had John's baptism but were not baptized in the name of Christ. And uh, so there is a difference. I don't want to camp out here, I do want to let you know the difference. The baptism that uh, is Christian baptism um, is baptism, according to Matthew 28, baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it is our public profession. It is what we do publicly to show in a powerful picture what has already happened. We have who have been saved are baptized. We are identifying with Christ as we are put into the water that just as he died and was buried, so we are put into the water. And just as he rose again, so we who are saved are now, it's not us, but Christ who's living in us. And we come out of the water showing our identification with Christ. So Christian baptism is an identification with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and it pictures the salvation that has already taken place in the life of the one being baptized. John the baptizer's baptism was not that. It does say, once again in verse 4, that he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now, it was not a baptism of faith. It was a baptism of repentance, So what people would do is they would come to John and they would simply acknowledge their guilt and their sin. And as they were confessing their sin, John would baptize them. So it was not identification with Christ. It was just an acknowledgement of guilt and a desire to be clean. And so um, this is not the same baptism as a Christian baptism. If you've got any questions on that, uh, jump on the Facebook group page and, uh, let's talk about it. Okay. Then you get to verses nine through 11. Jesus is baptized. One, two things we see here is God's pleasure. This is my beloved son, well-loved son and whom I'm well pleased. Or God could have said, this is my well-loved son. He makes me happy. Um, We also see in verses 9 through 11, the Trinity, and the Trinity shows up in close proximity in many passages in scripture. Here, the Trinity shows up again. Jesus is in the water. God is speaking from heaven. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. He's not a dove. He descends like a dove. Maybe it was in the form of a dove. We don't know, but it says descending on him like a dove. In verses 12 through 13, we have Jesus being tempted. Uh, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, takes 11 verses to unpack the temptation. Mark is just, he's fast. Mark is just fast. He's just telling the facts. He's going to slow down at times in this book, but a lot of times it's just rapid pace, this, 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 and then the next thing. And uh, so he talks about Jesus' baptism in only two verses. Then in verses 14 and 15, we read that because John the baptizer was imprisoned, Jesus went north to the area of Galilee. Uh, primarily on the north and really even more primarily to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Now, why did Jesus leave? Uh, John would have been baptizing in the Jordan, down toward the south of Jordan, toward near the Dead Sea. Um, And uh, Jesus moved up north. Why? Was Jesus afraid? No. No. Because Jesus came to die. He knew he was going to die, not a nat- of natural causes, but a death on a cross. It had been determined before God created the earth that he, Jesus was going to glorify the Father by doing this. So Jesus was not afraid. That's not why he went to Galilee. It's because there were many things that he had to do. One, he had to train disciples so that the Holy Spirit could empower them in Acts 2 so that they could take the world by storm with the message that he would give them, with the training that he would give them. So he had to have time to get disciples, and he hadn't even chosen the disciples yet. So that's why he had to get out of there. Second thing is that he had to live a perfect life. Right, The Holy Spirit came there on him as a dove and he had to live a righteous life and obey every single law that pertains to him so that when he died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, those of us who trust in him to be saved, he not only takes our sin and put it there on the cross and dealt with it, But he also credits us with his righteousness. And so the perfect life that Jesus lived, God credits that to our account. And so when we get saved, we're not just forgiven, we're also declared holy and righteous. Have you ever read the beginning of the New Testament, many of the New Testament epistles as Paul and Peter and John and many of them Jude are writing to the ones that they're addressing and they call them saints? That word hagios in the Greek is literally holy ones. Well, I'll tell you, if you read particularly the book of First and Second Corinthians, they weren't acting like holy ones, but yet they were holy. How so? Because they were saved, they had been credited with Jesus' righteousness. So how is Jesus going to credit them with his righteousness? He had to live a righteous life. And so he went to the north to the Sea of Galilee. And in that area of Galilee, he was living a perfect life so that everyone who trusts in him is not only forgiven, they get that credit, that they get credited with his righteous life. It's a trade. It's a swap. He takes our sin. We take are, are credited with his righteousness. All right, so then in uh, verses 16 through 20, Jesus selects his first disciples. Now, one of the things you also need to know is there are a f- couple of times, uh, there are times whenever Jesus calls uh, people twice. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I should have looked at this before I started this podcast, but I believe Peter is one of those. Peter gets called twice. And and we might wonder why. Well, did, did Peter abandon him at, at the very beginning? No. When Jesus called Peter to be, uh, Peter to begin with, he was calling him as a disciple, as a disciple. And we read that in verses 16 through 20, Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John. Now, why are these four mentioned? Because Jesus was hanging out in Capernaum. Which, if you were to look at the Sea of Galilee and you imagine that it's a clock, imagine that you're you know the top of the clock is 12, then go to 11 o'clock. Go to the left a little bit, and 11 o'clock is roughly where Capernaum was. It's right there on the sea. You can see the Sea of Galilee clearly from Capernaum, and all four of those guys apparently lived in Capernaum. And so Jesus calls them as disciples, and it's going to be a little bit later that after, after a night of prayer, Jesus calls his disciples to himself, and out of those disciples, calls 12 apostles. And so that's why they get called, some of them get called twice. One was to be a disciple, the other is a call to even closer to Jesus, be an apostle. And uh, he also made them a promise. He said, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Basically, he said, I promise you that if you follow me, then I will equip you to successfully fish for people. Jesus didn't say, follow me. He said, follow me and I will help you be something that you're not. I'll help you be something that is so much more useful to the kingdom. And that still applies to every single believer today. Verses 21 through 28, Jesus heals a man who is demon-possessed. One of the things we read in verses 21 and 22 is as Jesus went into that synagogue there in Capernaum, um, that uh, he was speaking with authority, and the people realized that, not as the scribes. And so what does that mean? Well, the scribes would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and here's the scripture. But Rabbi so-and-so interprets it this way. And so they, in essence, the scribes were submitting to others who had given commentary, right? Jesus didn't appeal to anybody. He just spoke read from the scripture, and he said, this is what it says, this is what it means, this is how it works. And he was speaking with authority, Um, and they were impressed with that. They were shocked at that. They'd not heard anybody speak with that kind of authority and not appeal to people who apparently were considered experts simply because they had said something and they were now dead. Verses 23 through 26, I find this... kind of sort of humorous because it actually says that Jesus was in this synagogue when a a man who was possessed, uh, was identified there in the synagogue. And so essentially the, the humorous part of it is, is that before Jesus showed up, you can have demon possessed people in church and nobody thinks anything of it. But when Jesus shows up, all bets are off. And, uh, Man, it's that same way. It's that same way in our churches today. If Jesus is not present, if he is not sung to, if we're just singing the hymns mindlessly or the songs mindlessly, and we're not craving to enjoy and experience Jesus in our worship services, if prayers are not heartfelt, praying out to Jesus, if the word is not proclaimed in such a way that it is pointing to and honoring Jesus then sin can be tolerated and sinners can feel completely comfortable in our worship settings. But if Jesus is exalted, then he's going to draw people to himself and sinners cannot remain in sin. And Jesus will fix them, given the opportunity, if they will submit themselves to him, he will fix them. And we see that happening in verses 21 through 28. Verses 29 through 34. Jesus heals in Capernaum. He goes and he heals uh, Peter's uh, mother-in-law. And uh, there is a home there in the ruins, or actually the 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 barrier, the outside wall of uh, of various homes in black stone there in Capernaum, and uh, and the the home that they think. Peter may have lived in with his wife and his mother-in-law, um, you could throw a rock from the synagogue and actually hit his home. It's it's not that far away. And so Jesus went there and uh, healed his mother-in-law and she got up and began to serve and a lot of people showed up. A lot of people showed up from that community to be healed. And I, I, I didn't look at the numbers, but I would suspect Capernaum was not that big of a city at that time. Not that big of a city. Verses 35 to 38, Jesus preaches in Galilee. He preaches in Galilee. And uh, so he is there and he is just doing all sorts of wonderful things there. But in verse 35, we see that Jesus um, went out early in the morning to a deserted place and spent time in prayer. He loves spending time with his father early in the morning. He went to a place where there was nobody. He got up early so that nobody would bother him. But then in verses 36 and 37, Peter goes out. Peter's just a, he's just a wiry sort of guy that's just energetic and he's got a boisterous personality and he comes alive in a crowd and Peter and a few of his companions go out and they find Jesus and they don't say, oh, he's praying, Uh, let's leave him alone. No, instead they go and interrupt him and they said, hey, Jesus, you know, uh, everybody saw what you did last night. You healed all sorts of people. There's more people that are showing up to be healed. Come on, Jesus, stop the praying. Let's get to work. In verse 38, Jesus made it very clear that he was not going to be reactionary. He was going to be proactive. He was not going to simply live a life in response to what other people wanted him to do. He was going to instead live his life intentionally based upon what he believed the Father wanted him to do. Peter said, hey, everybody's looking for you. There's so many people that need to be healed. In verse 38, Jesus said, let's go to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I've come. Basically, Jesus said, you know what? There's lots of needs here. There will always be lots of needs here. Let's go somewhere else. Let's meet people's needs there too. And so, once again, Jesus sets an example for us. Yes, there will always be needs. We ought to have a compassion for people who are in need, but we are not to live reactionary. We are to live purposefully. Not what do people want and expect us to do, but what does the Father want, and what does he desire for us to do? In verses 39 through 45, we read about a leper, uh, someone who had leprosy that uh, called out to Jesus, asked to be healed. And in verse 40, 40, we actually see the heart of Jesus moved with compassion. So Jesus didn't just say, okay, I'll fix you. He actually was moved with compassion, and it says he reached out his hand and touched him. Do you know what Jesus just did at that moment? Jesus rendered himself ceremonially unclean. But Jesus did it because he didn't care about himself in in in. In perspective, understand what I mean. He wasn't caring only solely about himself. He was caring about this person. He was probably thinking, this man not only needs physical healing, but this guy probably hasn't been touched in weeks, months, maybe even years. Because of this leprosy, nobody has touched this guy. Everybody's run, run from him. And so Jesus reaches out his hand to touch him. I'm telling you, we serve a God who dearly cares for us. He doesn't just want to to meet physical needs if we pray and it's his will to meet those needs. He wants to meet the needs of our heart. He wants to meet our emotional needs. Our God cares for us. And so Jesus, but then after Jesus healed him, he said, hey, don't tell anybody about it um, because Jesus didn't want... Uh, just to be bombarded with all of these people who would come for healing, and then also to have enemies that are rising up because they are being jealous that Jesus is taking away their crowds. Um Jesus didn't want all of that. And so he told the man, Don't tell anybody. Um, but uh but he told him, Go to the priest and uh, tell them what has happened. And what essentially Jesus was doing was saying, go to Jerusalem, go to the priest, tell them to dust off Leviticus 14, because I'm going to be sending a lot of lepers their way that were former lepers. Leviticus 14, I think, was not applied at all to lepers in the Old Testament, because we have no record in the Old Testament of someone who was a Jew that recovered from leprosy uh, that would require this ceremonial cleansing. And so what we see, (coughs) sorry about that, is Jesus telling him to go and be declared clean. Now one of the things this guy does (coughs) is he actually goes out and tells everybody And so as he is telling everybody about what Jesus has done for him, Jesus now cannot do all of the things that he desired to do. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. And we know that you told this leper that you healed not to tell anybody about you and he disobeyed. You told him not to tell anybody about you, and and he disobeyed, and he went out and told everybody about you. But Lord, we just read a few days ago in Matthew 28 where you tell us to go into all the nations and tell everybody about you. You told him not to tell anybody. You tell us to tell everybody. And so many of us are disobeying, and keeping quiet. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us of that. I pray that you would convict us of that. And I pray that you would help us to fall in love with our Father, to fall in love with you, to enjoy you, to find in you the source of our happiness and our joy. And out of the overflow of that happiness to gladly tell others how they can find that relationship with you too. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we've spent another day together, and I hope you've enjoyed this time. Uh, Once again, if you're enjoying this, uh, feel free to share this on social media, tell other friends about it. Um, And also, I'd love to see comments there on the Facebook group page, uh, the Enjoying the Bible podcast Facebook group page. If you've got any questions about something that was in the text that I did not address, or maybe you got a question about something I said, or maybe you've got an insight that I didn't even bring up, feel free to put that on that Facebook. Find the podcast that that, that it's relevant to and then write that underneath. And I love reading those and responding to it. And also, if you can think of uh, something else, another way that maybe I could make this a little bit more beneficial to you, certainly feel free to share that as well. I'm looking forward to spending time with you again tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.